Father, this morning we want to thank you for giving us another day, another Sunday, with the opportunities and privileges we share, another opportunity to be together, to learn more about how to love God and to love each other, the privilege of caring for each other, to bear each other's burdens, and to rejoice in each other's blessings. Thank you for the Virgil Anderson class, and thank you for our church and our church community. Thank you for those who have gone before us who we especially remember today. Father, even with all the blessings we enjoy, life sometimes gets hectic. During these days, the noise of discontent and confusion can be depressing and overwhelming. The evidence of so much evil in the world is unsettling. Help us during these times to remember in whom we believe and to remain persuaded that you are able to keep what we've committed to you. May our commitment always be strong and true, knowing how much you care for us. We ask your special touch and blessing on those who are in need of healing and comfort today. Thank you for your unfailing and amazing grace. <clears throat> Bless Phil as he leads us into a deeper understanding of our Christian faith and of our responsibility as your church to be a witness of that faith to the world. May we always strive to keep our lives centered in your will. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. I turned it up. Well, good morning. handouts today. I was telling somebody earlier, I'm, I'm trying to clean up the mess I made last week. I should have had a handout last week. You know, if you're, if you're a good teacher, you can anticipate when you need a handout, and I was a bad teacher last week. So I should have had a handout last week. So here's the handout I should have had last week. <laughs> Those of you who weren't here last week, you're lucky. Thank you for the birthday greetings, by the way. That was very kind. Um, and Judy, because I got here late. Are we, do I need to end early? Because are we doing something? It won't take more than five, six minutes. Okay, I just want to make sure. I want to make sure I give plenty of time. I don't want, I don't want to rush that. Okay. So what, what I've been trying, what I tried to do last week, what I want to try to finish doing today, I really do, and all I can do is try to sketch it. But what I've been trying to do is, is uh, lean on uh, some work in social psychology a little bit to try to answer this question that vexes me and maybe vexes you. And 
I've been vexed by it for a long time, and I just struggle to kind of make any sense of it at all. And the social psychology has helped me a little bit. It doesn't answer all the questions. And social psychologists don't get the last word on it. I mean, that's the part I want to add today. But part of what I've been trying to figure out, a lot of people have been trying to figure out, is um, how is it that either in the church or in our families or in political divisions, how can people feel so passionately that they are right and righteous and those who disagree with them are wrong and maybe immoral? I mean, I mean that seriously. And, and they feel the same way. And like, what is that about? I mean, can we say anything? Can we just open up a space that would slow us down? I mean, if, if we want to assume, and I think most of us are better angels when our better angels are given any room. Um, our better angels want to give other people, particularly people we know, like the benefit of the doubt, right? Um, and so, if how do we create a space to say maybe maybe they see something I don't see? Maybe they're feeling something I'm not feeling. Can we talk about that at all? And I think social psychology helps us just a little bit. Again, it's not the last word, but it's helped me at least create a space where I can slow down. And if nothing else, I think it it may lead to more productive disagreements. I, mean, I don't think it makes the, the, the differences, or the, it doesn't make us see things the same way, but it might be able to help us to name what it is we actually disagree with. Because right now we're not really disagreeing. We're just sort of ignoring and calling each other names. Um, and, yeah. So again, this is not a panacea. This is not a, you know, take this pill and everything gets better. But it's just an attempt to kind of, is there anything to learn from this other discipline? And I'm not a, an expert in social psychology, but I have tried to read a little bit. So that's, that's the background, like what are we doing? Why do we have this crazy handout? And um, why are we not reading the Bible? And why does it have a funky picture on it? Um, so anyway. So here's what I tried to do last week, and I, I tried to use slightly clear language this week. Um, a whole group of psychologists say that, you know, human beings, that we seem almost to come with trains coming towards us. <laughs> like whenever you're ready to say something important, social psychologists say, we don't know why, but the world is set up in such a way that the train always comes. So we'll let the train come and go. Train of thought. Yeah, I'm going to try to keep in mind train of thought. So what they suggest is it seems like uh, the human beings uh, come with kind of some innate morality, if you will, very basic. And a lot of them would argue it's evolutionary based and all that. We don't need to worry about that so much. But the point is that it's not the case. It seems to them, I mean, that the image that I like, the metaphor they use is it seems like almost innately we have what they call a first draft of the moral mind. Like a book, you know, like the first draft is written. And then as, as you grow up in a particular family or you grow up in a certain context, it gets revised. 
but it gets to rise in certain directions according to these like chapters that are sort of already in place, right? But they can look different, right? And the analogy that I used last week was like human language. All of us seem to be hardwired to learn language. Um, but what language you learn depends on where you grow up. Right? We all know that. If I hadn't grown up in this country, if I'd grown up in Brazil, I would speak a different language. But, but I didn't have to be taught to learn language and then learn one. Right? And so we, we have deep moral feelings about certain kinds of things. And we don't have to be taught to have them. But they do get refined in certain kinds of ways. That's what that's their insight. Okay, don't have to agree with it. But that's the that's the idea. And they say there seem to be like five good candidates, and there may be more. They don't think these are exhaustive. Um, five candidates for like the first draft, okay, of the moral mind. First one is care. That we seem to have a deep capacity to care, and we we cringe when we see harm done. Um, if you see someone beating a child in public, you are, you, you feel like a revulsion immediately, right? You don't have to tell yourself and your parents, you, no one taught you to do that, okay? Um, you just, you feel it. Um, and, you know, the, the, the so-called mothering instinct, right? You weren't necessarily taught that. It might, have, it might itself been nurtured and encouraged. But in most cases, it seems to be there, okay? So this harm and care kind of thing seems to be sort of there. Fairness and cheating, okay? Well, most of us have a deep sense of fairness. Um, and we just do. I mean, children seem to have it pretty early, right? Most of you can probably remember the first time your, your child said, that's not fair! And you had to teach them. Like, you started rewriting that chapter. Like, the world's not fair. Okay? Um, but they have a sense of fairness, and so do you. I mean, and, and the point is, we feel stuff that and sometimes is way out of proportion to, like, the offense. But we just have this deep sense of fairness. Uh, the example I think of is uh, waiting in line. Line cutters. Think about how morally indignant you get when somebody breaks in line. I mean, come on, like, it, like you get in five seconds later than they do? I mean, like the world didn't fall. The sky didn't fall. You know, America didn't come unraveled because someone cut in line for the grocery. Right? Um, but, but we also know that there are times when, you know, like who's first in line doesn't matter. It's not the only thing that matters, right? Um, most of you have been to the emergency room and you know about triage. Right? If you're sitting in the emergency room and you've been there for two hours because you have a large splinter in your finger and you'd really like to get it out, um, and they wheel in somebody with an automobile accident, and you're saying, I was first in line! <laughs> well, it's because some of the other things have to kick in, right? It, I mean, that sense of justice has to be adjusted because being first in line is not the only thing. Right? Sometimes, and sometimes you're like, you see a mother with three children behind you in the grocery line. You think, would you please go first? That just seems kind. I mean, that's the first one. Like, you, you, you care. And these are sort of in order. What's interesting, these are sort of in order of, of how strong they are across cultures. This is, this is a cross-cultural, cross-society thing. This is not just in the United States. Well, 
we could go on. I mean, there's lots of other examples there. Loyalty, betrayal. Um, most of us have a deep affection uh, to some type of in-group. Uh, often it's your family, uh, is one in-group to which you feel a certain loyalty. Um, it can be others. It can be a tribe. It can be, um, it can be a church. It can be your city. It can be a country, right? It can, it can, it can different levels of loyalty. Um, but human beings seem to have this uh, powerful loyalty to some group that has been specified. And again, what that group is has lots to do with what, how the draft has been revised, how you've been taught to think about who are the groups that you should be loyal to. But most of us have a, a deep need to create tribes. And last week we joked that said, even when we don't have to have them, we think, we create them. Like sports is partly about creating tribes, like to root for. And sometimes it gets like really ugly. Um, authority, okay? Um, most groups have some sense that, that order is better than disorder, and sometimes that's ordered by some type of authority, and that authority can look lots of different ways. Um, it can, you can have a dictator, that's a certain kind of authority, brings a certain kind of order. Um, you can have a democracy or a republic, and that brings a different kind of order. Um, you can have laws, that brings a certain kind of order that's not tied to a person necessarily. You can have moral authority like the Dalai Lama or Mother Teresa. So authority can, is a tricky thing, but most people think that, uh, and most groups cohere better when there's some type of authority. And most of us have deep reactions to that, right? Um, and so when we see somebody, you know, not obeying authority, sometimes we have a reaction to that. Um, but it's interesting because we also know there are times when we also find ourselves cheering people who sometimes resist authority because we know authority isn't the only thing. It's right, not the only value. I mean, what, why do we celebrate people like Rosa Parks? I mean, she did something that she shouldn't have done, right? Why did we, I mean, at the time, people were really upset about that. Not everyone celebrated Rosa Parks at the time, as you know. Um, not everybody uh, celebrated people who sat down at lunch counters right, during the Civil Rights Movement because they were violating uh, norms and laws. Um, why do we celebrate you know, Tank Man from 1989? Do you remember Tank Man? Tank Man was the man in Tiananmen Square in China who stood in front of that row of tanks who were rolling. Why do you celebrate him? He's not obeying. He's rebelling, right, along with one million other Chinese people, right, who were, who were challenging for democratic rights. And a lot of them, thousands of them were killed for doing so, right? Because other people thought, you got to obey, right? So there's tension there. There's tension there. We know that <coughs> obedience to the law is not the last word, always. But we also know that it's, we can't just have chaos, too. So, but there's, most groups have that, and they have deep passions about that. The last one's the hardest to describe. Um, it has to do with sanctity, and that is most groups, um, and, and it's, and it's uh, 
the interesting part here, if you, if you trail like where this comes from in human development, it gets really complicated. But it, the, the final result is that most groups have certain things that they attach almost a kind of sanctity to. Um, and sometimes the sanctity seems completely out of scope. I mean, to an outsider, it doesn't make any sense. Like, why is that given such power? But it does. It's part of what brings groups together. And I tried to list a number of things there. And, and they're things that somehow, if you, language of desecrate, right, which means, has the word sacred in it, right? means to violate that sense of sacredness. And a lot of us have a revulsion to something that's desecrated, um, whether it's a, a human body. I mean, most of us have a revulsion to cannibalism. Why? Because we don't think that's how, even in desperate situations, I mean, most of us don't think like that's what you should do with human bodies. I mean, right now, some of you have faces on, them, on yourself that you don't normally have, right? Um, I mean, dis, dis, I mean, we've, we've had a, a recent international case about potential dismemberment. Right? What, what's the revulsion around that? Because we don't think that's what human bodies think should, anything, even a dead body shouldn't be dismembered. Right? We have a kind of revulsion to that. Um, so it, it's, it's people. Uh, but it's not just that, right? There's other things, and I list a whole number. It can be objects, flags and crosses. It can be places, religious sites. Um, you know, and this is not a new thing, right? I mean, we, we know the, the Jews revolted, right? A couple hundred years before Jesus, because remember, uh, Antiochus IV Epiphanes set up a an altar to Zeus in the Jewish temple and, and sacrificed a pig on it, desecrating the temple. Right? And so that led to a revolt. I mean, so I mean, this is not a new, but people have deep feelings about things being desecrated. Most of you wouldn't appreciate if you went to the seminary, cemetery and someone was having a picnic on the gravestone of your parents. Do your parents care? Probably not. But you do, right? Because that feels like sacred space in some way, even though it's hard to explain exactly why the revulsion, but you do. Um, and it goes down, I mean, just goes down the lines of all kinds of things. We have saints and heroes that we um, look at, and also we have people that we're revulsed by. I mean. Un, we don't have as many of them that we name in American culture that, like unclean people, who are the unclean people? Like the lepers in Jesus' day. Right? People who made you impure. Um, again, it might have been originally a hygienic issue, but it, 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 it extended beyond that, didn't it? Um, and it has, and then you begin to see that some of these begin to, these aren't just sort of five separate things, but they're together. I mean, think about in Jesus' day, um, the attitude of, you know, so-called self-respecting Jews to the Samaritans, right? Remember who the Samaritans were. They were ones who, during the exile and other, afterwards, interbred with non-Jewish people. And so it felt like a betrayal, number three, 
felt like a betrayal of the in-group, but it also felt like because there was a sense of kind of purity of your lineage run through your bloodline, there's also this kind of defilement of your of your of the Jewish bloodline. So there's a whole bunch of things there they're going on. Um, maybe even authority about whether you know God had commanded them not to do this. So all kinds of things there are, are going together. These aren't sort of five separate things. Um, but you begin to see that there's I a mean, part of what's going on is most of us would like to think of ourselves as purely rational people. Um, but we're not. Um, we, and it's not necessarily better that if we would be. Maybe it would be, who knows. But that's not, we're created with deep and powerful emotions. And we often lead with those more than we know. And last week, you know, one of the things that social psychologists said is that um, because we find ourselves in teams and we find ourselves pitting ourselves against other teams, part of what makes us an us is that we've got an identifiable them, right? And it makes it hard for us to see what they see is because part of the time is we feel these powerful emotions triggered by something and then I go looking for reasons to explain why I'm justified in feeling that way. And I'll take anything I can find, because I'm sure my feelings are righteous, okay? And so, and other people do that too. And which is why we sometimes find it difficult to see things that run counter to what I'm feeling, or evidence, because I want to justify the way I feel, because my feelings feel right. It's not like I thought about it. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm sure the way I feel has to be right. So that's part of what may cloud all of our judgment at some point or another on lots of different things. And that doesn't mean our judgment's always wrong either. It just means that this is part, this is what psych, social psychologist says is partly going on. Now to complicate things and to oversimplify a little bit, although it is interesting, um, different people tend to weigh, just, just take these five, tend to weigh these five differently. And this is why I have the, the picture of the audio uh, mixer down below. If you think of those as sort of the, the five above, and again, there's other things that always play, that, that people, some of these values, if you will, seem to be more important to some groups of people than others. So for example, Research seems to show pretty predominantly, and again, this isn't in just the United States, um, but it seems that, and again, I hate these labels, but they'll, they'll get us, do a little bit of work for us, that social liberals, so-called, uh, tend to give more weight to those first two, which to be clear are the first, are the two that are trans-social for everyone and are almost are not at the top of every society. So it's not surprising that they, I mean, those seem to be the ones that everybody acknowledges. It's hard to find people who have no sense of harm and care, no deep feelings about that, and no deep sense about fairness. Those, everybody seems to have those. Um, social liberals seem to weigh them heavier than the other three. Okay, this is, anytime you generalize, you're generalizing. 
okay? which means you can find plenty of exceptions. People who are called social conservatives tend to give about equal weight to all five. But again, be clear, those five often come in conflict with each other, and so decisions have to be made about how to weigh any particular matter. The reason I ask you to think about this, because I can think of a number, number of examples, and you probably can too, where the reason it's hard to have a productive disagreement is because um, people on either side of this particular spectrum feel very powerfully about supporting the values that they care most about, and they can't see the other side. And because we, we find ourselves in a political Situ uh, situation where, for whatever reason, it's complicated, you know, lots of people are to blame. That's not the point today. But we feel like we have to demonize the other side. And so there seems like there's little incentive to actually listen um, because the, the assumption is they're not just wrong, but they're maybe even evil. Um, then I, I don't have any reason to create the space to try to see what they're seeing. And again, I still may at the end of the day think they're wrong. I'm just trying to figure out, like, why do they feel so passionately about that? You know, can I give them the benefit of the doubt? I still, at the end of the day, think they should not feel so passionately about that. Uh, that's okay, but at least, I think that's a, at least a small step forward to acknowledge that they, they have legitimate feelings, legitimate reasons for why they think what they do. I can still think they're terribly wrong, but I don't have to think they're evil. Okay, so the example I ask you to think about um, was the passage in here about immigration in the social principles in section three on the social community. This comes on page 38. Most of, not most, 75% of the paragraphs in section three, the social community, are about rights. Um, and rights are about number two, right? Rights is the special language we use when we're trying to talk about fairness. That people have certain rights that shouldn't be violated. Like how to treat people fair is one of the ways to do that, is to have rights. And we know we have lots of rights in this country. Um, and we know that rights can't simply be about like what most people want to do. I mean, that's why you have a bill of rights, is to protect minorities. Right? I mean, if we woke up tomorrow and decided, you know what, freedom of religion is just stupid. We're more Christians than we are anything else. So we're going to pass a law that says only Christianity can be celebrated and, you know, worshipped in the United States. Because that's what most of us are anyway. We say no. <laughs> because there are certain, th certain things, certain rights that need to be protected that we think we think we're right about this, that everyone should have the right to do, even if the majority doesn't want them to, or even if the majority doesn't want to do that. Okay? Um, I mean, that's an easy one at one level. Right? But you begin to see the point. Uh, and it even extends to other things, like freedom of speech, and which means allowing people to say, really, really vile things that, I mean, I wouldn't let my children say, 
but the government's not going to stop you from saying it because it's not their place. Right? Because once the government sets it up and deciding like who gets to say what, then you have to then you have to decide what the content is. Now again, there there are limits to that. We know that. Right? You can't yell fire in a crowded theater. That's not free speech. That's dangerous. Okay? I mean, so it's not, I mean, there are constraints on it. Um, but it's, it's rights language. And rights language, and the other language we use in the law, and the lawyers here can help me because I don't want to speak for the lawyers, um, but one of the primary principles in countries like ours has to do with the harm principle. Yes? I mean, one of the things you typically have to demonstrate in like a civil action is that you have been harmed. Because that goes back to number two. I mean, we think you shouldn't harm people. And so we're trying to balance, this, balance people's freedoms, which is one of those things we feel really powerful about in number five. Like ideas, ideas we really, really care about. Freedom, but we really, really care about that. But we also know that your freedoms have to be constricted sometimes. Right? Particularly when what you're doing harms some other people. I mean, this is why we don't allow people anymore to smoke in public. And you might say, well, why does the government have any interest in telling me whether I want to roll up some dried leaves, set them on fire, put it in my mouth, and inhale it into my lungs? That seems like that's my business. Well, it, it was your business, and you could do it until we had evidence that secondhand smoke harmed other people. In which case, now your freedom needs to be constrained for the good of other people. Because we care about harm. <laughs> all right? We do. And so, you see how all these things kind of work together. Um, but we try not. We try not to infringe on people's freedoms. You generally, in the United States, cannot infringe on people's freedoms unless you can demonstrate harm. So notice what we say here about immigration. I say we, meaning the United Methodist Church. You may or may not consider yourself part of the we. Uh, this is on page 38. I'll just read it. One paragraph. Rights of immigrants. We recognize, embrace, and affirm all persons regardless of country of origin, as members of the family of God. We affirm the right of all persons to equal opportunities for employment, access to housing, health care, education, and freedom from social discrimination. We urge the church and society to recognize the gifts, contributions, and struggles of those who are immigrants and to advocate for justice for all. We oppose immigration policies that separate family members from each other or that include detention of families with children and we call on local churches to be in ministry with immigrant families. Yeah. The ringing phone is the corollary to the train. <laughs> so, if you didn't catch all that, you can read it on page 38. So, why do people feel so passionately about immigration? Well, again, I don't, I don't, I, I neither presume to explain it nor do I presume to resolve it today. Just trying to say that maybe part of what's going on, part of the reason, is the way that we think about it and the way it's been presented to us in which ones of these values have been triggered by the discourse and which ones 
you know, have we found ourselves latching onto as the primary reason that we feel passionately about the way that we do? So, for example, there are, I mean, one of the, one of the, line, one of the languages you hear um, is, you know, we, we, have, we have laws about immigration and they should be followed. Okay, that's number four, right? We have laws about immigration and they should be followed. And so go to the back of the line. Okay, that's what a lot of people will say. That's, that's number two, right? The sense of not, it's not fair, right? Um, and you can see that. Um, there's been other, um, there's been other things, right? Um, but that, those are two powerful arguments, right? That people feel very passionately about. Laws should be followed. Right. Um, illegal immigrants are breaking the law. We can't have that. Okay. Others say, I hear what you're saying. But their question is, um, is it possible that at least in some situations, and again, we'd have to be able to talk about this reasonably, but we, right now we can't. But is it possible, the question is, uh, at least in some cases, is the immigration issue uh, a little bit like triage? Right? Are there some, take, take refugees. I mean, we have pretty much decided we're not going to take refugees. Um, or not very many. And refugees feels like a little bit like triage. Um, to some people, not to everybody. Fair enough. But for people who think we ought to be a little more generous about letting some people cut in line because their livelihood or maybe their life is at stake, that, that feels like, go ahead, cut in line. <laughs> um, asking you to wait in line might be a death sentence to you, and that's not overdramatic, it might be, okay? And so that's why they feel. And so there's no easy way to answer that because everyone feels like but we're a nation of laws. True. And it's a good thing we are. Absolutely. No one's arguing that we shouldn't be. Um, but part of the reason that we can't, I mean, again, I hate, I hate to talk about politics, but there's no way to avoid it here. Um, the irony is that both sides, if you talk to, if you talk to people um, who are trying to do the governing, they say, if you get them to talk off the record, that they really want sensible immigration reform. But we're so polarized, no one wants to take the risk to do it. Because once you've said, we're a nation of laws, go to the back of the line, then if you give at all on that, then the people who care about that think, number three, you've betrayed us. Okay? You've betrayed us. You're not loyal to our way of looking at things. And, and so it feels like we've created a situation where people are trapped into positions they don't really want to be in, but we, we, we sort of created a situation where it's so polarized and so inflammatory 
that cooperation now and compromise, I mean, compromise is a dirty word now. And yet, everybody knows, if, if, you, if you live in a family where there's no compromise, you ain't got a family. You got something else. Okay? And all of you learned that at some point pretty early on. Hopefully before you got married. <laughs> um, but now we've made it a dirty word. Because our camps, our teens, see the other team as evil. Which means if you're cooperating with them, that's betrayal. How could you do that? And that's why all the moderates are disappearing. Because they're not real team members. Right? And so, and again, I'm not denying, people feel really strongly. They absolutely do. And I'm not telling them they shouldn't feel really strongly. But this is not the end of the line. I mean, the thing that's, that I want to add to finish up with is just to remind you something that you already know. And this is what I mean by social psychologists don't get the last word. And this is on the reverse side. And that is, Jesus in his day speaks to each of these values and challenges the way that people in his day were thinking about them. So, I'm not going to tell you today what to do with this, but at least we ought to know. You know, it's not enough for me to say, but I'm... As a human being, I have these feelings quite naturally towards my tribe, or about authority, or about fairness, or about, I mean, there's not, that's not the last word if you're a follower of Jesus. Because <laughs> even these deep virtues that we feel powerfully about by Jesus gets challenged in a way that had to be so unsettling for people in his day. And it's probably no less unsettling for us. So let me just run through real quickly. And this is just review. These are things you know, so I don't have to linger on them. But just to remind you, things that's easy to forget. When you wake up and you think you belong, you know, to the elephants or the donkeys, first of all. So, care and harm. I mean, Jesus calls us to love our neighbors as ourselves, even to love our enemies. Right? So, I mean, you can't watch Jesus in his day without thinking he's pushing at the boundaries of the circle of care. Because it's true that all people think we care about people, but, we're, but we care about some people more than others. And there are some people we don't care about at all. Right? And Jesus keeps pushing at the boundaries of like, what's the circle of care to which followers of Jesus are obliged to care? And he's pushing at it a lot harder and a lot wider than I want and that I'm comfortable with. But that's what he's doing. Um, and I list, you know, I remind us there of the so-called, the parable of the so-called minimally decent Samaritan, which I've renamed it. Said, you know that story. Right? We call him the Good Samaritan. Jesus doesn't call him the Good Samaritan. He just thinks he was just... But he was the outsider, right? I mean, it's not, that story doesn't, make, doesn't have near the power unless you understand that's the person that the Jews hated. Fairness and cheating. I mean, no one, Jesus is not trying to get rid of fairness and cheating. Jesus is just saying that if you're a follower of me, uh, that standard's way too low. Uh, 
Because fairness and cheating is just giving about what people owe to one another, what's due. And Jesus said, you, what you owe to one another, if you want to use that language, is, is way beyond that. Because you've received from God not what's your due. The whole point of grace and mercy is they go beyond justice by definition. They are unearned. And so what I owe to my neighbor isn't just justice. I mean, that's minimal. But I, but I also owe them mercy and grace. That's a tension for us, right? That's a tension for us. And Jesus has a parable in Matthew 18 about people like me who want justice and mercy for me and everybody else to get what they got coming to them, right? Jesus has a parable about that. And that's me on a lot of days. I mean, I, I want justice and I want grace and mercy. I want people to overlook my, but I want justice for you. Loyalty and betrayal. I mean, Jesus is pretty clear. The New Testament is pretty clear is that our ultimate allegiance is to God. And to we follow Jesus. And our, we, we say this prayer, the Lord's Prayer, which is a, a kind of prayer of allegiance, right? Your kingdom come. It's a prayer. It's a kingdom prayer. Our allegiance is to this kingdom, this enduring kingdom. And that qualifies all our other allegiances. Do we still have other loyalties and allegiances? Yes. But they are relativized by that primary allegiance. We see our other allegiances through that allegiance. Which means we have to think what they mean. And again, the, the followers of Jesus, you know, we do in Scripture have a unique attachment and responsibility to other members in the body of Christ. But we don't do that to pit ourselves against everyone else. Our special attachment to each other is to demonstrate a kind of love that bears witness to what God desires for all people and which we are called to take to all people. So our special attachment is not for us. Our special attachment to each other is for the sake of the world. Authority and subversion. Uh, Jesus subverts a lot of authority, um, the way we think about authority, right? He says, if, if you want to be great, in the, if you want to be great, you have to be servant of all. Think about that. Um, and he tells us this comes up. Of course, you remember when James and John come to him, Jesus in Mark in Mark ten. There, um, James and John come to Jesus, and say, "Hey, Jesus, we want you to give us what we want." Jesus says, "What do you want?" Well, we want to sit at the right and left hand of you in your kingdom when you come in glory. And they're thinking, like, that's coming soon. Jesus says, you really know what you're asking? I said, oh, yeah, we do. I said, well, I don't know if you do. Uh, but it's not my place. And he goes on to say, because now the disciples get indignant. Like, who the heck do they think they are? Um, and Jesus says, you know, the Gentiles, their leaders, they, they lord it over. Like they take their authority. They lord their authority over others. But it won't be that way among you. Because among you, if you want to be great, you serve. Turns, I mean, completely. In his day, if you were lowest on a totem pole, you served. You were a slave. Jesus said, you want to be great in this kingdom? That's what you do. So all kinds of things about authority. I say some other things there, but I'm going to hurry on. And then last, I mean, Jesus 
clearly messes with their notions of what's holy, what's pure, what's clean, um, in ways that upset people enormously. He hangs out with the wrong people, he doesn't wash his hands the right kinds of ways, um, he's eating with the wrong people, he's touching the wrong people, he's making the Sabbath presumably unholy in their eyes. I mean, he's doing all kinds of things that just seems like he's, you know, desecrating a lot of the things they care about, and they are outraged. But Jesus is not doing it just for effect. He's trying to get them to see something they're not seeing. Um, so even Jesus doesn't sort of let things, it's not enough that they feel outraged, like, how could you do this? You can't be of God because you're outraging me. Well, they were outraged, for sure. But Jesus is trying to do something else. So all this, again, none of this makes our disagreements go away. I just wish we could have an honest disagreement. Um, and talk about, you know, what, why we think what we think. And what the assumption is that the other person also is a decent person who cares about a lot of the same things we do. Um, and, that, and that goes for the church. Um, you know, we're having this uh, deep discussion and disagreement about what to do with human sexuality. It's coming up in February. A lot of us are anxious and fearful. And I think there's some things, I think this sort of discussion can, may illuminate that as well. So that's for another day. But that's what I wanted, that's my attempt to try to clean up a little bit and clarify uh, what I was talking about last week with the help for some other folks who think about human life differently than we sometimes do. If it's helpful, fine. I, t I promise you last week it was just 35 minutes, but now it's 70, and so that you've wasted. Um, but hopefully, maybe just something might be useful. Let's, let's pray together. Gracious God, you have created us uh, with the capacity to feel things passionately, um, strongly, strong emotions, and uh, we believe those emotions are good. Uh, we know that they can be dark, and they can take us to dark places, and yet we feel like um, there's also something there that's, that is, is good in our creation. And so we pray that we might, um, as we listen to each other and we hear the passion in people's voices, um, that we would try to honor that, we try to hear that, um, that we would not assume that if they think something differently than we do, that they are necessarily wrong or immoral or evil. Um, pray that we create the space to hear each other um, and, and then try to discern together uh, where, we, where we honestly disagree. And may that be so in our neighborhoods, in our families, uh, in our church. Um, and pray particularly for your church. Uh, that you have called to be one body um, and that you have made one body in Christ. And may we live more fully into the one body that you have made us in the days and weeks ahead. So may we not be driven by fear. Uh, may we have a somehow sense your presence in the midst of our disagreements and pray that we would seek your wisdom and the guidance of the Holy Spirit in all that we do. We pray this through Christ. Amen. Amen.